Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We're glad you're with us this week on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Now, in the past few weeks, between natural calamities passionate protests, the U.N. General Assembly, we have seen some pretty dramatic human behavior, right? Heroism in the face of disaster, hatred and violence over our differences, posturing and personal threats between the leaders of nations. If, in taking all this in, you've ever wondered what makes people do what they do, well, we've got the perfect guest for you then this week on KCBS In-Depth. Dr. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist and adjunct professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, a best-selling author of several books on the brain, including The Brain, The Story of You, which was the companion to his international PBS series. Along with four startups involving the latest in brain research and technology, Dr. Eagleman heads the Center for Science and Law a national nonprofit working to better our criminal justice and correction systems by understanding brain damage and illness in crime. A favorite in TED Talks, Dr. Eagleman recently presented some of his research at the Minimally Invasive Surgery Week conference in San Francisco. Speaking with him was so fascinating that today's program is only part one of my discussion with brain expert Dr. David Eagleman. Dr. Eagleman, thanks so much for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. Great to be here. So many topics to discuss as we look at our brain and why we do some of the things that we do and the drive for creativity and the drive for altruism and and the opposite of that. So let's start for, for folks who might not be um, up to speed on all of your work and maybe missed the PBS series, The Brain, The Story of You. Give us a quick synopsis. How does our brain versus our mind make us us? You know, the discovery of the last uh, 100 years and especially the last several decades has been that we, we are our brains. So we understand when you, let's say, damage your brain, a little tumor, a little stroke, things like that, that fundamentally changes who you are. Whereas if you damage some other little part of your body, like your pinky, you're sad about it, but you're no different as a person. And so what all of the clinical literature put together has told us is that you are these three pounds of tissue. This is where the um, you know, your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations, the agony, the ecstasy, it's all taking place right, right there. And when that changes, you change. Let's talk about some of the things that can change the brain. Obviously, injury. Uh, in fact, yeah. you have developed technology that can look at concussion uh, activity right on the sidelines of a football game or wherever one is. Exactly right. Yeah, so just on, the, on a tablet or a phone, we have you play very simple games. And we can tell just in a few minutes whether you've been concussed or not, because 
when somebody gets a concussion, that changes very particular things about their cognition and their perception and their decision-making. And so we detect that with these very simple games. So there's there's brain injury, and certainly we've seen military folks coming back from the Middle East with severe brain injuries, which has completely changed the landscape of veterans' health care. There are diseases that affect the brain, but what do we do to ourselves? Certainly drug abuse. Sure. But I mean, what else? You know, there's a sense in which people have known this for a very long time. For example, you take alcohol in the brain. You know, it's an invisibly small molecule that you pour uh, into yourself, and then um, that makes you funnier at parties, or so you think, or what you know. But, but even these very small things will change you. Medications can change you. Um, just as one example, um, in recent years, it was discovered that patients who were taking medications for Parkinson's disease were becoming compulsive gamblers and and blowing their family's fortune in Las Vegas or Atlantic City, that thing, that kind of thing. And um, and the physicians who looked into this carefully figured out it was because of the Parkinson's medication. It was changing their risk aversion so that it turned them into gamblers. And so now this is part of the warning on the drug. You uh, dial the amount of drug you're giving so that you get the benefits for Parkinson's, but not the behavioral changes. So everything we do, uh, you know, steroids, when, when people go on steroids and they get roid rage and so on, all of these things are changing us, um, you know, strokes, neurodegenerative disorders, and so on. And, and cumulatively, this is how we know that that you are your brain. And the really weird part is probably your diet every day, what you eat and so on, changes you in subtle ways as well. And so day to day and hour to hour, we're sort of different people. And, uh, and we sort of, when we look at one another, we understand each other as the average of the person. Oh, like, oh, yeah, I know Jane. This is the average Jane that I know. But in fact, you have fluctuations all over the place. So knowing all of this, do you ever take a drink, a social drink, knowing what the brain is going to be doing with that? I mean, once any of us know too much about germs or whatever, we become a little germophobic. I know I have. Yeah, I, I hardly ever drink, but I think I, I didn't drink much before anyway. Um, but, you know, it's funny living life as a neuroscientist. It doesn't actually affect your daily life as much as you would think. For example, I have two young children, and I, my wife's also a neuroscientist, and we thought for sure we're going to be running experiments all the time and doing stuff. But when you actually go home at the end of the day, you're just a parent, and you're just trying to control the chaos at every Mac moment. Mac and cheese like every other parent, right? <laughs> yeah. So somehow there's this disconnect between the, the theoretical knowledge you have and sort of your day-to-day experience. Just as one example, if I, you know, explain to you every last reason what, you know, what strawberry ice cream means to you and the signals it passes through your brain and why you like it and how it activates your reward system and blah, 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 I could explain, I could write a whole textbook on that and it wouldn't change at all your enjoyment of strawberry ice cream. You'd still eat it and enjoy it just as much whether or not you had the knowledge behind it. It's almost like they live in non-overlapping domains. As you said, this uh, small organ determines who we are and what we do in the world. And that goes for those making decisions, making military decisions, political decisions, public health decisions. If we were just to look right now at uh, the aftermath of a huge natural disaster and we're seeing acts of bravery and adrenaline that seems to carry first responders through two and three days without sleep... And then we're also seeing an absence 
of empathy in some folks, even with this. So what is that part of brain function? Is that part of part of how we're nurtured? Is it nature or nurture or? Yeah. So when it comes to nature versus nurture, this is essentially a dead question because it's always both. And these come together in very complicated ways. So you're born with a certain set of genetics, and this gives you, let's say, your predispositions. But then every experience that you have from actually the time that you're in the womb, the, the things you're hearing and so on, your experiences in the womb, but, but especially once you're born and all the experiences you have and then your kindergarten, your elementary school and your parents and every your hometown, your culture, all of this stuff shapes your brain given your genetics. So what happens is this very complicated interaction um, and so the nature versus nurture question, the answer is always, always going to be both. As a result of people going off on these very different trajectories, um, brains end up being as different as, um, you know, if you look around a room, you see how much difference there is in people's faces. There's that much difference in people's brains. Brains are really different from one another. And the strange part is we each are essentially living on our own planet um, and and when we have this low bandwidth communication between people, it's just this very thin line of communication between planets that's happening. Did you see this Matt Damon movie, The Martian, where he's he's all alone yeah. on Mars? That's that, when I saw that, I thought, God, that's a, that's a great analogy. It's essentially like you you've got this massive planet, and you are the sole inhabitant of it. Um, so. When there's a natural disaster like Harvey and some people are altruistic and some people don't care, and so the, you're going to find the whole gamut. Why? Because people are really different from one another uh, on the inside. And this comes about as a matter of genes and, and experience. And so what about tribalism? I mean, we, we've also just seen uh, episodes of white supremacy and we're seeing racial hatred. What is it that causes that tribalism? Is that a brain thing, a mind thing, a personality thing? Or again, are we just talking about all of the above? Well, I would say, yeah, I would say we can't separate uh, mind from brain. They, they are uh, inextricably linked. Um, but so, yes, it, it is those things. And, uh, you know, we're just an inherently very social species. So we care a lot about bonds to our, our friends and our community. And often this expresses itself as in-group and out-group. And this is something that is pervasive throughout every human society, every situation we find. People care about their in-groups and, uh, and don't care as much about their out-groups. So we actually just did a study in my lab where we put people in the scanner in what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. And um, so they see six hands on a screen. And one of the hands gets selected by the computer at random. And then you see that hand get stabbed by a syringe needle. And so it's a very, you know, it's, it's very cringeworthy. Willies, yeah. Yeah. And um, so we're measuring your, essentially your empathy response. Because what happens when you see the hand get stabbed, areas in your brain come online that are involved in pain. Pain normally that, that you would have. But, but now it's not your hand getting stabbed. Nonetheless, these areas come online. Um, and so this is this is the basis of empathy. But now what we do is we assign each of the six hands a one-word label: Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Scientologist, Hindu. And now you see a hand doo -doo -doo, get selected and then stabbed. And the question is, does your brain care as much if it's a member of your outgroup? And the answer is, your brain does not care as much. 
um, there's less of an empathic response. And this is, of course, true across all the groups. It's even true of atheists, by the way. Atheists care more about seeing the atheist hand get stabbed than they do about other hands. And so it's not, this isn't even an indictment of religion. It's just which group you belong to. It's, it's just whatever you consider your in-group, you care a lot about and you care a little bit less about the out-groups. And of course, there's some variation. Some people, you know, are more caring about everybody and some people are less caring about everybody. Um, but the general story is we are very wired for having in-groups and out-groups. The interesting part is this is very flexible. So just as an example, you know, America and the Soviet Union did not get along. Then there was World War II. Suddenly we were allies. Everyone was sharing cigarettes and clapping each other on the back. And then after World War II was over, then they're back to being enemies. So this kind of stuff happens all the time. It's just a matter of how your in-group and out-group is defined at any given moment. It's extraordinarily flexible. So it's all perception. And that perception can be driven by... Anything could be driven by what popularity, that nebulous thing nobody in high school can figure out, <laughs> or leadership. Yeah. Um, media. Sure, sure. And even when it comes to, you know, even when it comes to this last election with for the president or anything like that, it's uh, it's all. I mean, we all we all are we all know the jokes about it and so on. But the fact is, it's complicated because when I talk to people who voted for Trump or for Clinton. Um, everybody had particular reasons they were voting. They said, well, look, I really care about this issue here, but I don't care so much about that, and I'm willing to ignore that, and so on. And uh, for most people, it's that sort of calculation, and they come up deciding which candidate they want to vote for. But it's this very complex dynamic of sort of sub-in-groups and out-groups. Like, well, I really agree with this group on taxes over here, and I don't care about this group over here, but I do care about property tax issues on that, and so on. We're talking about the brain, your brain, my brain, and why we make decisions that we do and do the things we do. My guest is brain expert, neuroscientist, and author, Dr. David Eagleman. I'm Jane McMillan. What about the suspension of fact or truth? I think we can all agree that, and and being in a newsroom and, and seeing fact and content backing up certain things and uh, debunking others, I think that that this last round of of politics, uh, climate denial, and uh, quoting numbers that just don't exist, that, that it's very easy to point out that this is false, incorrect, false, a lie at worst. What makes us susceptible or to choose to believe something in the face of an of a fact that proves us wrong? Well, the fact is that things like truth and truth-seeking are not what we're naturally built for. Um, we're, as I said, we're extremely social creatures. We care about other people and their opinions and so on. And and so it takes practice. This is why we send kids to school for years, and then some kids go to graduate school, and they really work on how do I know if this thing is true or not true. And the general story, of course, with all this stuff is, you know, somebody can say whatever they want, and if you look on the internet and look for something that supports that, you can find things that support whatever craziness you want. And so... Um, that might be enough for you. You might say, well, look, I found this webpage that says that that's the case. That's not all that comforting. If if we're living in a self-determining society that needs to take information and process it and make decisions, uh, that's not all that 
that comforting. I agree. It's better than it was because, precisely because of the internet, actually, uh, in the sense that governments can no longer censor the way they used to even last century, where they could completely control the press on things. It's happened in China, it's happened in the former Soviet Union, and so on. Um, now, because of the internet, it's totally impossible to do that. You can find the truth, it's just that you can find lots of other things also. So it's sort of the opposite problem. Instead of just getting one censored story, you're getting lots of stories, and you have to try to put together the best, best thing you can. And the other thing I'll say, just just as a general statement, is you know life is complex, and all of these political issues are complex. Which means that what both sides are looking for in any political debate is sort of the zinger sentence where they say, "Well, look, it, you know." Obama did this with taxes, or this with welfare, or this with prisons, or whatever, you know, just like some sort of zinger, and they, and they go back and forth on this. But the fact is, almost any issue that you look at is actually quite uh, nuanced and sophisticated, and you have to dig more deeply. And the fact is, not everybody has that at the top of their priority list to dig deeply on some political issue. Is that a, a new, uh, not new, but is it, a, is it a larger factor in how our brains work now in the digital and bombardment media age in that we're seeking out the simplistic rather than the nuanced? I, you you know what, I would, I don't know, but I would, I have a strong suspicion that people have always sought out the, the simplistic answer uh, rather than the nuanced. So we're making decisions on public policy, as I mentioned, based on our, how our own brains are functioning and also based on the knowledge or lack of knowledge on the function of everybody else's brains in society. And let's talk about your work on the brain and the law. Yeah, so here's, here's where I can get less... I, I, I'm afraid I sounded cynical uh, no, leading up no, to now. But, but here's where I think it actually matters and where you can do something about it. So first of all, what the internet does afford is the easy ability to go deeper on things. So just as one example, we're doing a lot of... So I direct the Center for Science and Law. One of the many projects we're doing is we've leveraged the Freedom of Information Act to get the crime records from counties and states all over the nation. So we've got many tens of millions of crime records from 1977 to present. We put it all online with an extremely easy uh, system to, to visualize the graphs and charts and whatever. So... This is for legislators, this is for reporters, this is for anybody who cares about, okay, well, how do I want to vote on this next thing? You can go and you can see from 1977, let's say New York City, okay, here's this, you know, here's the crime rate and, you know, for these categories of crime. And then this law was passed in 1984. And the question is, did that actually do what it was supposed to do? Did it drive crime up? Did it drive crime down? Did it do nothing at all? We can really look at legislative efficacy. What we've done is take you know, by having all these millions of records online, we've made it easier to go deep and to actually have the evidence right there so you can see what the effect of different laws is. So um, I feel like, you know, this kind of thing really allows us to be, have the opportunity to be a more educated population. Let me say, in general, what we're trying to do in neuroscience and law is build a better legal system. Um, many people probably know, but lots of people don't know that America is the number one country in the world for the percentage of our population that we put behind bars. We put a higher percentage of our population behind bars than anybody in the entire world. And we could talk about the morality of that and so on. 
uh, and you know, or the cost of it. But it's it's not even efficacious. It doesn't even accomplish anything because once you put somebody in jail, it becomes a revolving door because you break their social circles, you break their employment opportunities, you give them new social circles, new employment opportunities. They they circle back around. Um, so the recidivism rate becomes much higher once somebody's been in prison once. So what we're trying to do is figure out how we can solve that by taking a more realistic view of the brain, which is to say brains are all really different from one another. People commit crimes for different reason. And so can we get a more refined system that instead of saying, okay, you committed this, you're going to go to jail for five years, instead says, okay, look, you committed this crime. You're going to get some sort of punishment for this, but we're going to tailor the sentencing. I mean, we talk about tailored education all the mm-hmm. time. Why not tailored uh, punishment? And so the idea is, um, you know, if if you're a judge and you have a bunch of people standing in front of the bench, all of whom have committed exactly the same crime, but this guy over here has schizophrenia. This guy here is a psychopath. This guy here is tweaked out on drugs. This guy here comes from a very impoverished neighborhood and so on and so on. These call for very different routes through the legal system. I just want to emphasize this doesn't let anybody off the hook. It's not like it forgives somebody. But it it says, look, if you really want to get the biggest bang for your taxpayer dollar, you don't just say, okay, everyone's getting exactly the same sentence, you go to jail. Instead, you figure out what are the rehabilitative strategies. And I'll tell you one reason why this is really important. The population of our prisons has gone up eightfold since the war on drugs was declared by President Nixon. And... It's not like we're sticking the big drug cartel bosses in jail. We're sticking the guys who are caught there for two ounces of something. And, you know, this is not the this is not the place to put drug addicts and hope for something useful. Instead, what we get is is more recidivism. We get people returning to prison. Instead, we know so much in neuroscience about the circuitry and pharmacology of drug addiction and how to treat that. And and um you know, me and several of my colleagues, I mean, dozens of my colleagues all around the country and the world have are, are pursuing different kinds of approaches at all different levels for how to help people with drug addiction become not addicted. And and it's this sort of implementation that, that really matters. Well, and, and the current attorney general, Jeff Sessions, is, is looking at reinstating and ramping back up the war on drugs. And we've got an opioid crisis on our hands. So as you're looking ahead at the impact on the brain of a big percentage of the population and then public policy that may not be responding in a smart, a brain smart way, yeah. are you predicting a, a massive uh, shift um, into the prison population again? Yeah, exactly. And you know, the fact is, this has the this has the potential to ruin a generation. Um, if we say, I mean, as it stands right now, we spend 15 billion with a B on the war on drugs every year. So we have DEA agents go in and they torch cocoa fields, and everyone, you know, gets footage of this and thinks it seems great. But the problem is that the drug economy is like a water balloon. If you push it down somewhere, it's going to come up somewhere else. So the drug supply is always shifting around. If you want to address drug, the drug problem, you have to address demand, not supply. And demand is the the brain of the drug addict. And and this is where bringing to bear all these tools that we currently have already to help with drug addiction, instead of imagining that incarceration is the one-size-fits-all solution that's going to help the, the opioid crisis, well, for example. And sadly, in this country, mental health has become a criminal justice issue. That's exactly right. What happened is there was deinstitutionalization some decades ago, and, and there were all kinds of reasons for that. The, the mental institutions weren't being run very well. Anyway, that all got shut down, and the entire 
population with mental health problems ended up flowing into the prison system. So, so it's become our de facto mental health care system. And uh, the estimates now are that 30% of prisoners have some sort of mental health problem. They've ended up in prison. And, you know, aside from the morality and the cost and whatever, again, it's not efficacious. You can't take somebody with schizophrenia and have them break rocks in the hot summer sun and hope that that's going to do something to help them with their schizophrenia. So we have to be smarter about the way that we go about this. Now, I'll mention that in some places in the nation, they have actually started to get smarter and do things a little bit better in in large part because they were running out of money and they couldn't afford to build a bigger prison and their prisons were getting overcrowded and so they were forced into it. But what they did is spun off specialized court systems. So instead of having just one court, you have a special mental health court and you have judges and juries there with expertise in mental health and they know how to recognize mental mental diseases. They know what rehabilitative strategies are available that kind of thing. You have specialized drug courts where you have judges and juries with expertise in that. You have specialized courts for various things, including prostitution, for example, which is a very different kind of crime than other crimes. And so anyway, this, this having this specialized court system is super useful, and it saved counties tons of money, and, um, and it's really reduced their prison population. So unfortunately, you have to run out of money before you get there. But but then you know why not? Whatever gets you there. Well, we can talk about the motiv- motivation and the brain. <laughs> One more question on that, actually, and that is, how do you answer? Let's say you're at a cocktail party or you're just chatting with with a, a lay person. They say, take a mass shooting or something horrid in the news. What makes a person do that? Oh, I mean, the answer could be one of 97 things. Sure. And so sometimes it happens because of a brain tumor. And you know, I got to say, these are very difficult things for our society to face because we have plenty of bloodlust as individuals, as, as homo sapiens. And so just as one example, um, you know, the Texas Tower shooter 50 years ago, Charles Whitman, mm-hmm. who climbed up the tower at UT Austin and just started, uh, you know, randomly shooting people. He killed 16 people and wounded 39 others that day. It turned out he had a brain tumor. This is a long story, which I, I won't go into right now, but but the uh, Texas governor's office did an autopsy. They discovered this tumor. They, they ended up publishing that. But it was such a tragic event for the people who lived there and saw the event that a lot of people just didn't want to hear it. Now, now Charles Whitman was killed at the scene, so there wasn't any question about his punishment anyway. But I think we're, we're really going to get stretched as a society now that we can detect brain tumors with imaging much more easily. I mean, we could never detect them back in 1966, except at autopsy. Um, I think this is going to come up more and more. It's already coming up in courtrooms all the time where someone ends up having a brain tumor. And and it's really going to stretch us when we think about, gosh, I hate this person so much. And he killed all these people, maybe killed my family members, things like that. And then the question is, gosh, what do we do about the fact that he didn't choose to have a brain tumor? This wasn't what he had, would have wanted for himself. Uh, Charles Whitman, as it turns out, was very high IQ. And kept a very careful diary every single day. This was back in 1966. Kept a very careful diary about how he was changing, and he knew he was changing. And he went to a psychiatrist to try to get help, and this was before anything could be done in terms of imaging for brain tumors. Um, And so what he said in his suicide note is, when all my debts are paid off, I want an autopsy to be performed. He, He is the one who requested it. That's heartbreaking on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. 
And that was part one of our in-depth discussion on the brain with Dr. David Eagleman, Stanford neuroscientist, author, and director of the Center for Science and Law. Next time, Dr. Eagleman tells us about his research into our creative minds, how we can start now on making the future better by embracing the human ability to innovate. That's the basis of his latest book, The Runaway Species. I hope you'll join us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 